Luke chapter fifteen. It's close. That's what I said, right? I said fifteen. It's the very beginning. Thank you, Jesus. Woo. Ready? Father, we thank you for 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 you for for all that you're doing here in this place. We thank you, God, for the things that you're doing in the nations. Father, it is well, we'd just like to agree, God, that um you're doing such a great thing in our day that if we were told that we wouldn't believe it, we wouldn't know it, we wouldn't have any recognition, God. And sometimes, God, we may think that our lives are just um boring and 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 mundane and not going anywhere. But God, we know that that's we know that that's not true, and we know God that you're not a God that takes naps or breaks. You don't need you don't need God to catch your breath. You don't run out of ideas. You don't need to repeat yourself. That you are always doing something interesting, exciting, new, different, and wonderful, and something more glorious and more beautiful than what we could imagine. And we're very grateful for that. We're very grateful, God, for you. We're grateful, God, for the things that you're doing in our lives, in our church. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us today. We love you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Are you ready? Okay. All right. We're going to start in Luke chapter 15. Ah, so thirsty today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him, sorry. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. I, uh, Luke 16 is uh, a chapter of three parables. And um, you already know this from the titles um, that you have in your Bibles. You're so helpful. Um, there are three parables about lost things. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, when she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right. The context of the story is important because I think we can relate to the context. Jesus is telling, um, saying things. And, um, and the tax collectors and the sinners, in other words, the deplorables, um, were, uh, were drawing near to Jesus and wanted, wanted to 
to be in a service-wanted relationship with him, right? Okay. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who are, you know, the people that have it together, um, uh, didn't like it, right? So they grumbled and they're like, oh, why is this man hanging out with, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? And, um, and the Bible says that so he told them this parable. In other words, what, what, is, what does this so mean? So it means that the parable was told to explain to them why it is that he is friendly, he's close with, with, with these people that are very obviously sinners. Yeah? Jesus, I think, in this point, is very often misunderstood and misrepresented. Um, we say that he's a friend of sinners, and he is, but sometimes people use that in, um, I, I, I think, just for, um, to make a political point of some sort. He, he's not a fraud, or he's not a drunkard. Do you know? He has a heart for them, but he's not one of them. It's like, it's, it's very important. Because we're like, oh, you know, Jesus is like, he's, he's like, that. no, he's not at all, actually. There's nothing to do with that sin. He just has a value. Um, this, is very, this is very interesting. The parables explain why God has a value for sinners and, um, and why other people do not. Let's start with some confessions. Uh, confessions, not me. As I'm going to invite you to, to confess some, something this morning. <clears throat> We don't care very much about the lost. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes do not. We know that we are supposed to. But we don't care very much about it. About them. We probably as a church care more about than other people may if it was a competition. But it's not a competition. It's, we're not comparing ourselves to other people. We're comparing ourselves to God. God cares about them much more than we care about them. And the question actually is why? Well, you could say, well, maybe you're just selfish. I mean, guilty is charged. But, but that may not be the reason. The reason as Jesus explains in these two parables, in these three parables, actually, the third one we're, we'll read in a moment. But you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, so, so that's okay. Maybe we'll read it, maybe we won't. Depends. There's no time. The reason, as Jesus explains it, is not just, well, you guys are selfish people. It's not, it's not that you guys are just reli- you guys are religious people. It's, it's not you know, that your hearts are hard, although that's probably true. It's not that you're prideful, although that's probably also true. These are all fa- fine explanations of things, um, uh, and, and they seem like very good reasons, but that's not the reason that Jesus poses. What's the reason that Jesus gives for why he cares, and he is happy to receive them, but that the tax collectors and scribes are not? It's not that the souls themselves are so valuable, actually. Let me back up. We think that that people are, are so intrinsically valuable. That's why the angels in heaven rejoice over one person who's saved. It's because you are so freaking important. You just made just like God. And so it's like there's another God being born when you get, that's why all the angels are like, yeah, another God. No, it's not that. 
I mean, think about it for a moment. If you have $100 in your wallet and you lose one, you haven't actually lost very much. One percent of something is not actually very much of very much of anything. Look, when you go to um, this, the, the the cafe, okay, you order your sandwich, you pay for your credit card. Do you know how much Visa takes? It's more than one percent. I tell you that much. One percent of something, and you don't even mind. You don't even care. You're not even like, you know what? I don't want Visa to get anything. I'm gonna I'm gonna use cash. It, because one percent of something, two percent of something is not very much. This is really important. Because I, because um, you're gonna, I'm gonna make the point in a moment, and then, you, and then, and then you're all gonna be like, "Oh, I don't like that." Okay, this is really important. It's not that the sheep was really important. When you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, that the one that's lost is not actually rationally, mathematically, logically very important. You wouldn't know the difference between having 99 sheep and 100 sheep, just like you wouldn't tangibly really feel the difference between making $99,000 a year and $100,000 a year. It doesn't actually make any real difference in your life. It, not, not in any logical sense. It doesn't. The second parable is a little bit more striking, but the same point is made. If you had $10 and you lost one, you had nine, it doesn't actually make any real difference in your life. There's nothing that you would do with $100,000 that you wouldn't do with $90,000. There's nothing that you would do with $10,000 that you wouldn't do with $9,000. Nothing that you would do with, with $10 that you wouldn't do with $9. You're like, yeah, I would, I would get the extra scoop of guac at toilet. You wouldn't. That's why people who can't tithe are so silly. Because God asks you for so little, it's not really, it doesn't change your life whatsoever. There's no way in which, I mean, you can lie to yourself and be like, well, I need the dollar. You don't. Like, it's, it's, you're lying to yourself if you think that you do. But when you have something, this, this, is, this is Jesus' point, which, which I love because, because it, it, it'll help you. Maybe. It, hel it helps me. It helps me. When you have something and then you lose something, that thing that you lose all of a sudden becomes irrationally valuable to you. Like totally, re strangely valuable to you. Do you, do you understand? How many of you um, ladies, and I pick on you now, I pick on the gentleman too, like ever lost like a hair tie or something like that, and then you're like, well, I knew I had it somewhere. <laughs> I will it back, dump it out, go into my room, you know, every shirt off the drawer, and I'm going to make the whole mess. I can't find it. I can't find it. Like, it, 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 it's, you know, it's like they're 20 for Imagine that you threw it away and you're going to just, who cares? Like, it's not, it's not worth the, I mean, you know, I've watched people spend hours, hours looking for things and they're like, what, it's a half-used eraser at the end of a pencil? Like, it's just, you know, like, what I mean? Well, I had it somewhere. It's my favorite highlight. It, it, it's a three-quarters used two-year-old highlighter that's half-dry. Pretend like you don't have it anymore. Buy another one. It's my favorite. I highlighted my Bible. It, it, when you lose something, it becomes irrationally valuable to you. God is not irrational, but he's using the experience of the irrationality in men to illustrate to you why souls are so valuable to him. 
It's not because a human is so intrinsically valuable. It's that there are, there are certain times and conditions in life where things become strangely disproportionately valuable to you. And to God, the things that God has lost, so to speak, are, are, are what we, we would, it, it wouldn't line up with human sense, but they're just that valuable to him. And the reason that, that we do not understand this is because we are not, are not used to the experience of losing things, actually. Because in Christian life, we don't believe in losing things, and we don't enjoy the experience of losing things, and we do everything we can to prevent losing things. And so today, I'm going to talk to you about the beauty of losing things. You didn't see that coming. Because I want to encourage you to stop fearing, losing things. And I want you to be encouraged, actually, that as you begin to embrace the experience of losing things, this is a weird church, right? We tell you to love hunger, tell you to love darkness, tell you to love loss, loneliness, sacrifice. It's not very edifying. It's like all these, why, why, why? Why can't we go to a church that's all about community and building each other up? Because it doesn't lead you into the kingdom. If you could feel the way about a lost soul, the way that you feel about losing a ticket to the movies, or the doll you had when you were five years old, and if you could feel that way towards the loss, we would care about the loss. But we try so hard not to lose things. We try so hard to save other people from losing things. Because we believe that loss is not the will of God, but it is. So intrinsically woven into life. When people face loss, there's usually two responses. One is defiance. You say, you can't take that from me. And the other is some form of denial slash victimhood, which is to say that, you know, I'm traumatized now. But God has created things to be had and then to be lost. And what loss should stir up in us was just very interesting. I was reading recently a, uh, have, you, have any of you heard of um, The Beauty of Dusk? Frank Bruni, it's a, okay, well, it's, it, uh, Frank Bruni is a, is a New York Times, he's a New York Times colonist now, but he used to be, um, a, I think, a staff reporter. And he uh, is the exact opposite of what we, um, that many of you ascribe to be, he's, he's uh, but he's a fairly successful individual and a great writer. And um, when he was uh, in his early 50s, uh, one day he had a stroke. And uh, all of a sudden he lost vision in the right eye. And um, in, in his right eye, just like that overnight, just woke up one day and just, it's just gone. Uh, and, um, and then he went to um, a neurological ophthalmologist who told him that there was a very good chance that he would also lose vision in his left eye. 
that uh, he was at very high risk for. Now this is a uh, um, strokes that cause vision loss or something are like a one in 10,000 sort of experience. It's not very common, right? Um, but, um, but it does happen. And, uh, and so he was talking about um, how um, his, his experience. And he, he, and he said something that really very, just struck me um, very much. And the reason that it struck me um, very much is because I, I, I don't, I didn't thought about loss very much, honestly. I, I don't, it, because I, I, I don't personally, um, I, I just don't hold on to things very tightly. Um, but he said something that was very interesting. He said, like, pre prior to that moment, there are so many things in life that he'd not accomplished, but he essentially said, well, you know, if I had worked harder or if I'd um, been more creative or more gifted, I would have accomplished them. And then after he um, starts, um, went blind, at least in one eye, and was in danger of losing eyesight in the other eye, all of a sudden he stopped caring about the things he had accomplished and became grateful for the things that he had accomplished. He said, prior to that point, he had many grievances about things that had gone wrong in his life, career opportunities that he didn't have, promotions that he had been passed up on, people, relationships that he lost, you know, things that weren't pursued, things that he felt were unjust. And then afterwards, he just became grateful for the things that he had. And then I like, went through a series of these like, very immediate like, transformations where, where the loss, the, the experience of losing something itself, it's very interesting, the experience of losing something itself completely changes perspective on what it is that he had. Until he began to lose things in an irretrievable, irredeemable way, uh, he, didn't, he didn't, wasn't grateful for the things that he had. And God actually also uses this for the same reason. We cannot be scared of losing things for ourselves, number one. I mean, number two, and this is just as important, honestly, honestly, honest to God, just as important, you cannot be scared of other people losing things. For instance, their relationship with you. And the desire to avoid conflict, tension, trauma, loss of this sort means that we often don't take the steps that we should be taking or doing the things that would be right to do in order to help that person find their way to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's talking about sexual sin in the church. But it's not that that's interesting. It's his remedy for it. It's his, it's his, um, his prescription for it, right? Starting in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. You know this verse probably, aghast to find it in your Bible, so clearly there, so undeniably there, and yet we don't particularly like it, because if you actually had to do such a thing, could you? Would you? Would you consider it right for someone else to? Would you consider it right to deprive someone, not like, I mean, the, the language here is pretty like straightforward, right? You cannot dodge what, it's, what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, in Jesus' name, by his power, you're to take this man, kick him out of your church, and let the devil have him. So the devil can destroy his life. And the point of all that, the loss of everything in his life would be what? So that at the end of it, 
that something would happen in the course of that loss to cause him to go back, to come back to God, to find his way back to righteousness to God. And that by the day of the Lord Jesus, by his return, that he would be right with God. Now, what this means, though, is that you are very likely never to talk to him again, very likely never to see him, very likely, perhaps, to see him begging on the street, very likely discover that there are things that you could do to help him, but that you would choose not to do it. There are things that you could do to avoid his pain, but you're going to not do them. You're going to allow the devil to take everything and strip everything out of his life, just like he did to Job. Except Job was righteous. It's different. All in the hopes that loss and suffering loss is the remedy that he needs in order to find his way back to God. There is something that loss does that talking to someone does not do. There's something that loss does that rebuking someone does not do. There's something that loss does that crying with them and encouraging them and affirming them simply does not do. It just doesn't do it. Sometimes somebody needs to lose something in order to wake up and to turn back to God. But that's not the only reason that loss happens, of course. But Paul is using it as an illustration. It, it, it's, it's, it becomes essential, do you see? And if you build a culture around the fact that nobody can ever lose anything, then this is not ever going to happen. Do you understand? There are people that you should never talk to again, such as every single person you've ever dated. There are some people that you don't, like, do you understand? There are some people that, like, you don't need to have a relationship with. There are some people that are not your friends. They haven't been your friends in a very long time. You need to stop pretending that they are. It's time to unfriend them on Facebook. Well, I know Christian young people that have literally slept with other people and decided that they should still be friends. Not only do I know them, I, I understand this to be thought of as a holy thing that you could sin together and yet still be friends because God is redemptive in that way. And if you don't see how distortive this is, you don't see how this will not, first of all, lead to God, and second of all, it will trap people in a world in which they will never actually discover God, because they're hanging on to a bunch of things that should not be hung on to. There's a reason why loss happens. There's a reason why both good things and bad things are lost out of your life all the time. And the more that you try to hold on to it, the less you're able to actually move forward in life. There's a lot of our world that is designed entirely to prevent people from losing things. For instance, their hair. Do you know how much the pharma industry makes on hair loss medication every year? The fear of, because of people's fear of losing hair. And people take drugs every single day just to prevent just the smallest amount, of just, just like normal balding. People go bald. Most men go bald. Eh? I happen to think that men look pretty good bald. Uh, it, it's not particularly prevalent among, among Asians, so it's not prevalent at all in my family, so I, I, I don't know that I'll ever experience it. Although we do go white early, <laughs> go silver early, but 
but don't really go bald, so I don't know that I've ever experienced it. But, and it would not be at all surprising to you to know that people fight against it with everything that they have, with all the resources, they'll fight against it. Something that is totally and utterly natural. You will one day lose every capacity you have in this life. And some people will say, well, the old age, of course. Like when you're 85, you don't expect to run marathons anymore. Although I guess if you're Brother David, it's different. You don't expect to run marathons anymore. Okay, sure. But what happens when you're 40 and you can't run marathons anymore? What or like, what happens if you're 40 and get into a car accident and you're no longer able to walk? Are you now less valuable because of what you've lost? Will you spend the rest of your life trying to get back what it is that you had? Will you hate God for allowing you to lose something that you thought was your right to have? Will you be grateful for all the years that you could walk? I don't like it when people lose things, especially prematurely. I don't like it when parents have to bury their children, husbands have to bury their wives. I don't like accidents, I don't like suffering, none of us does. And it's the protective bubble that God puts around our life that prevents us from losing things prematurely. Do you remember what Satan said to God about Job? Satan said, you put a bubble around him. Nobody can touch him. Of course he loves you. I thought, I thought to myself, is that why the devil can't steal things from us? Because he would if he could. Do you know? But God puts a protective bubble around you so that he can't take things from you. If the devil could take your eyesight, he would take it. If he could take your health, he would take it. If he could take your money, he would take it. If he could take your home, he would take it. He would cause it to burn down. Like the devil does not love you. <laughs> God does. And because he loves you, he protects you. He, he, like it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Like he has put, the reason you have anything is because God has protected it. Anything at all. There's nothing you, you have in this life. Your ability to breathe, God. Your ability to walk, God. Your ability to play basketball, give him thanks. You know, like your ability to, to rock climb or not. Like, just kidding. <laughs> your ability to, like, to do anything. Your ability to, to, to go out for a stroll. Like when you breathe a clean air, don't be like, ugh, exercise. You're like, thank you, Jesus, that I'm able to do it. It's, it's the devil would take everything from you. Couldn't. And then when, the, when God said, okay, take it. Let's see if he's, you know, he <laughs> doesn't love me for those reasons. And he take it. And, and so the devil did. He took everything from Job that he had. All of his possessions, his businesses, his donkeys, his camels, his, his goats and sheep and, and his family, all in one go. And Job mourned, but he's still faithful to God. And then God said, okay, you can take his health. You can take everything. And, and, and there's something interesting in that, right? Your health is the, one, is the thing that I think, if you were to lose, would be the most challenging for you. Most challenging than any relationship. Most ch more challenging than any possessions. Your health. And so and finally, God allowed... Why didn't we read Job? Why did we read this? But anyways, <laughs> finally, God allowed the devil to take his health. And his wife comes to Job, and, he says, and she says, curse God and die. And Job says... God gives, God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, come on. Like, I love it. There's something about the fact that it's, it's not, this is why it's okay. You can be, the problem is not being wealthy. The problem is being trapped by it, and he wasn't. 
He wasn't. He wasn't at all. The problem is not being healthy. The problem is being trapped by, and he wasn't. At the end of all things, at the loss of all things, at the at loss of all things, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Like, blessed be the name of the Lord. I, there's something about this that, that just, you see, he wasn't scared of losing things the way that you and I are. We pray on it. You people are able to manipulate us because we have it. Your FOMO is one of the main reasons why people are able to manipulate you. When a televangelist says, if you give me $50, you're going to get this great blessing from the Lord, but you don't give me $50, no blessing. You'd be like, well, I'm not sure if I'm actually going to get blessed, but I don't want to risk missing it. So here's the $50. You're allowing people to manipulate you because of your fear of losing things. And it's deeply irrational because the experience of losing things itself is so wonderfully useful. I know people, well, not by name, they're just kind of people that I've, I've heard their stories over the years who, have, who are especially committed to, for instance, orphans because they lost their own children. Well, that shouldn't surprise you if you understand loss. If you're going through, having gone through the loss of a child, you understand is there some, something in your heart that you just begin to appreciate other people's children who need help in a way that you hadn't before. But you wouldn't, that wouldn't have come alive in you if you had never experienced a loss. I am obviously not saying that it's a blessing to lose your kid. But what I am saying is that loss does something so important to us. It grows us, it changes us, it transforms us, it pushes us forward in such significant ways that we should never be scared of it. Every fig tree every year needs to lose all of its fruit. Otherwise, it will never have another season. Every apple tree every year needs to lose all of its fruit. You understand? All of its apples, all of its leaves, it needs to lose everything that it's produced. Everything has to go. Otherwise, it cannot enter into its next season as a tree. True or not true? And so when a harvester comes and he begins to pick the apples, nothing wrong is happening. Not only is nothing wrong happening, it's something very essential is happening in order for that tree to move along. But if you are afraid of losing things, you're, all you think is that something is being taken from me in life. Something is, is this is not good. I should, I, should do, I should hug my apples close, make sure that nobody can take them. I should put them on the highest branches so that the people can't reach them. But that's the opposite. There's no church that likes to bleed people. But you have to, because there's some times where you just, not everything stays with you all through life. The moment you start, the moment you have a child, you must know that one day they're leaving you. The moment that you begin to have a friend, you must know that like, that friendship will end. And it doesn't mean that you need to meditate on it all the time, because then, you know, you just start to get teary. You know, you don't need to meditate on it all the time. In fact, you shouldn't meditate on it, but it needs to be very, very, very real to us. It needs to be very real to us. And that even though we are young, that loss is coming. It's absolutely coming. Death is coming. All these things are coming. But, but, but the, the problem is that we are trained. In fact, we are told that it's holy. God will never allow you to lose anything. He doesn't want you to lose anything. He wants you to keep everything you have forever. All the people in your life are supposed to be with you forever. All the things that you have in your life, they're supposed to be with you forever. You know that family that lived in the same house for 52 years? They're like, you're like, wow, you never had to move you out. Like all your childhood memories are all stored in that one place. And there's something very, uh, that, uh, that, I mean, that, that is what some people have in life, but there's something that is a trap 
in that. It's important that you learn how to escape that trap. I used to, um, I heard stories about, you know, celebrities, um, pe usually people in show business that spend, you know, whatever, like a million dollars a year on clothes or something like that. They'd be like, that's so ridiculous. You never do anything like that. That's ridiculous. And I can't remember, I, I think one time I was listening to an interview. Um, it's a waste of time. Um, and somebody was saying how, you know, they buy clothes and they just wear the one time and, you know, because they're just, that's their in show business. You know, they wear something once and then they donate. Oh, it was Vanna White. You guys know who Vanna White is. Wheel of Fortune girl. Do you guys don't know who Vanna White is? What are you, like, ugh. You guys don't watch Wheel of Fortune? Wheel of Fortune was, like, the, uh, such a great show. Like, when I was a kid, I watched Wheel of Fortune every day during, anyways. She was a hostess on Wheel of Fortune. And every day she had a new outfit. And at first I was like, how, how many clothes does she have? And then I realized, when I was much older, oh, that like, you know, there's people that buy her, that get her new clothes, everything, she wears it once, and then, but then I mentioned how she donates her clothes and things like that, and it's like a big thing. Anyways, on the one hand, it would be terribly materialistic and selfish and all that to buy something, wear it once, and then donate it on repeat and spend a you know, million dollars a year doing this. On the other hand, if that is your lifestyle, and if that is what you've grown accustomed to, then... There's, it's not new to you to not wear the same shirt again. We have the opposite problem. See, I have a shirt that I've worn probably about 100 times, maybe 150 times, that has holes, like huge ones. That's why I don't wear it in public very often. It's got like holes, but it's like my most comfortable, it's my favorite one. It's the one that like when Esther washes it, like it's always at the top of the pile because I always take it first and then I wear this one. And... Um, and, uh, and, but it holds, it holds in several different places, like not subtle ones either. And then, like, I think it was last week, I was like, I was like, hey, honey, I, I, think, I think we've reached the end of, like, the life. I, I think this shirt has reached its end of life. You know, it was an expensive shirt, you know. It was, it was I don't know, like 50 bucks or something like that. But, you know, but, but, but it's really reached the end of its life. I think I should just toss it. And, um, and she was like, no, I'll repair it. I'll, I'll, I'll repair the hole. Don't worry. Do not ever toss it. And I was like, oh, this is, it's, 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 it's this very, and I was like, oh, that made me so happy to hear because I get to keep wearing it. It's soft. It's one of those things, you know, you wash it so many times, it's just become soft and it's you and it's conformed to just you and, you know, and, and just, but, but, but that mentality, you know, that, that it's, it just makes you happy to not lose things. My, I, when I was in high school, I had a friend who was probably the only best friend I've ever had in this life. It's the only time in my life other than, you know, I guess now that I'm married and be like, oh, my wife's my best friend. But, but like, you know, but like a, like a best friend that's not like, uh, I have to tell people you're my best friend kind of best friend. You know what I mean? So, so uh, uh, which, which we, are, we obviously, I'm closer to my wife than I am to anybody else in life. It's just, sometimes it just feels forced, you know, to, you, you have to say that. So, even though it's true, you still just don't need to like say it all the time. Um, anyways, but when I said I had a friend who was, who was actually actually like we were very close, we talked many hours and just um, most days, and um, and then college we grew apart, and then uh, even I mean, and I think it was like a year and a half ago or something like that. I texted her for her her birthday and. Um, and oh, I said hurt, which I, that's probably against a lot of people's doctrine. Anyways, um, but it's a test for her birthday, and um, and she's like, oh, we should catch up sometime. And um, I meant to respond, that I forgot to respond because we're on vacation. And then later, I was like, should I respond? And I was like, and then one day I realized that I'm doing this because 
I'm doing this because even though we don't see each other, we haven't talked to each other for, I mean, we haven't hung out for, I don't know, three or four years at this point, that the memory of what was is so hard to let go of. And the sense that something can be over. And so I'd always dream. I dreamed a dream of time gone by, you know. I, I'd always dreamed that she's not a believer, that, you know, one day I'd have the opportunity to, to reach her and her husband now, and that we would hang out together, like in the old days, and talk about, you know, what are people showing in Milan this season, and things like that. But I, I just, and maybe that will happen, who knows? God is, you know, God sometimes does weird things. But, but the, the, the reality that that even is a dream, that that is a natural thing for people to dream, that that is the sort of thing that we desire, it steals from what is new and from what God is doing. The Jews always wanted to go back to the old times when there Solomon's temple, you know, if we only didn't sin, if we go and go back to Solomon's temple, but God was never interested in rebuilding Solomon's temple. Solomon built a great temple, most glorious. People today, Christians, want to rebuild Solomon's temple. God's no interest in rebuilding Solomon's temple. He's moved on. He moved on the moment that Nebuchadnezzar's army pulled it down. Moved on. Because God's doing a new thing, a new thing, a new thing, a new thing, a new thing. And just like you can't put new wine in old wine skins, just like you can't put a new patch on old clothing, which I've got to tell my wife at some point, you can't put new you in old season. And you can't put new someone else in an old season. And the only way to move on to new things is to lose old things. If you're unwilling to lose old things, but you want to move on to new things, you end up hoarding. And hoarding is just as bad as anything else. It's, it's, it's lost denial. I deny that I lost this tooth, so I'm going to keep it forever. That tooth was awesome when it was in your mouth. Now it's nasty. You know, you don't need to keep it. It's done with. We're done. Just move on. The fear of loss, I think, has a number of different sources. One is just that you're so proud of who you are now that you can't imagine anything better happening to you and so afraid of losing things. Maybe you enjoy what you have now so much that you can't imagine anything better coming along. So you're afraid of that. There's a lot of people that start to like someone romantically and don't believe that anybody better will ever come along for them. And so for the next gazillion years, just hang on to that. And sometimes you did find the right person and you just, you know, five-year engagement sort of thing. And sometimes you have to deal with your fear more than anything. You need to deal with your fear the fear that nothing better will ever come along. But something better always comes along because that's who God is. In Philippians chapter 3, which I'll read now and then I'll keep talking to you about some other things, Paul um, is very interesting because Paul is, okay, Paul is as, um, uh, has as a significant a life as anybody you know, right? And, and Paul in order to step into his calling in God, has to do what? 
It's not a trick question. What does Paul have to do in order to step into the calling that God has for him as an apostle of, of Christ? What does he have to do? He has to leave definitively everything he ever knew. Right? And he talks about that. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain resurrection from the death. It's a very famous verse. It's a very famous set of verses, but think about what it is he's saying now circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal persecutor of the church, as the righteousness under the law, blameless. He's telling you what it is that he's losing in order to be a Christian. What is it that he's losing? Everything that he's ever known. And a very good record. The best of educations, the highest standing among his people. Blameless as the righteousness under the law. I mean, that's pretty, that, like... Okay, okay, all right. It's one thing for a sinner who's never kept the law to say, grace! <laughs> it's a totally different thing for someone who has kept the law, all of it, every single day of their lives, to say that righteousness, my righteousness, I give up my righteousness under the law. I count it as rubbish. One of the most difficult things that, that people have to... One of, okay. One of the most difficult things that happens with righteousness is that, the, is that you begin to take great pride in righteousness in this way. The things that you are righteous in, you elevate their importance. The things that are not righteous in, you diminish their importance. This is one of the trickiest parts of, of pastoring and it, uh, allowing other people to pastor. When you assign... Oh, okay. Well, behind the curtains just for a minute. When Esther and I assign someone to be somebody else's mentor in this church, I know that there is a human tendency in the mentor to elevate the things that they do well to the mentee and to diminish the things that they do not do well. And so if you're a mentor and you have a problem with porn, for instance, you're very likely to tell your mentee that it's okay. If you're a mentor and you have a problem with drinking, for instance, you're like very likely to tell your mentee that that's okay. If you have a problem with, but if you're very good, for instance, with faithfulness, 
you're very likely to say, that's really important. You've got to do that. that like, you know, your prayer life, that's everything. Like, you can't spend 15 minutes a day with God. Like, what do you have? Most people like to shape other people in the pattern of their own righteousness and unrighteousness to defend and to establish the value of their righteousness. It's a tendency that all people have. It's very difficult to be very bad at something and then say, no, that's really important. It's not hypocrisy. Some people say that that's hypocrisy. That's the opposite of hypocrisy. That's the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is where you shape righteousness after your own image. It is the opposite of hypocrisy to know that you're unfaithful with something and yet be honest before God about it and not diminish its significance in other people's eyes. Now Paul, you hear what I just said, right? Now Paul, being righteous under the law, being righteous under the law, being blameless under the law, said, I count it all. It's lost. I've lost all things. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He considered knowing Jesus more valuable than being seen as righteous by others. That may be easy for a sinner, but it's not easy for someone who kept the law. <clears throat> for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Order that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I understand this. If I hold to the belief and if I teach others that righteousness is when you keep the law, then I cannot have Christ. It makes me feel good because other people lift me up, but I can't have Christ. Just, I count my entire life of law keeping as rubbish in order that I might have him. That's hard if you're not used to losing things. My parents still have every one of my trophies <laughs> from math counts. You don't see a single one of them here. I don't have my own diploma from college. My parents have that. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen it since the day it was given to me. It, it, because the, it's not like... It's just not, it's just, you just can't hold on. You gotta let go of things. You gotta let go of things. Sometimes the best marriage counseling is for the couple to separate. Why? So that you can learn to appreciate each other. Sometimes when you live under the same roof, you don't really appreciate each other that much. Sometimes you need to not see each other. Oh, I never miss my wife more than when we're away for a week. I'll tell you that much. If I'm traveling or, you know, I, if I haven't seen Eliza and Micaiah, like, you know, in a few days, I'm like, oh my gosh, I miss my kids so much. They're so important to me. They're so awesome. They never, they're, they're never bad or fussy or anything. I just want them back. And of course, that's not true. You know, normally Eliza's like yelling. I'm like, why is this stop yelling? But, you know, when you're away, you're like, oh, they're perfect. 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 It's just, it's, it's how it is. But when you begin to, when you, when someone thinks that they, that you'll never leave, that they own you and they don't appreciate you, it's because you've given someone an, uh, an unconditional guarantee that they're not meant to have. We teach in the church, for instance, that salvation cannot be lost. Really? Really? Then what is the point of Hebrews teaching on apostasy? 
We teach that God would never walk away from you. Really? Walked away from Esau? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You value your relationship with Jesus? Great. Live like it. You value your relationship with your friends? Great. Live like it. You value your relationship. Don't let other people take advantage of you. Do not try to save them from losing things. Because people need to lose things in order to understand their value. You and I need to lose things in order to understand their value. When you lose the presence, have you ever lost the presence of God? You learn to value it more. Have you walked into a season where you knew that God was not with you? Oh, God never abandoned me. I just don't feel him. Well, <laughs> it's because you can lose things that you value them and it's, it's intentional. It's part of life. That's why in church discipline you create separation. That's why Jesus teaches you to excommunicate people out of the church. That's why Paul is very fine with delivering believers who are not willing to repent to Satan. That's why he's fine separating them out of the church. That's why judgment is actually very often a very useful thing. And it's also why it's important for us to get used to not having things forever and not seek to keep them forever. Luke chapter 16, one last story. About the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Why did he say that? The beginning of the story is just as interesting as the ending. It's a story of three acts. The beginning is the son leaves. The second part is the son uh, comes to his senses, goes back to his father's house. And the third is the dealing with the, with, the, with the older brother's attitude about all of it, right? Okay, so let's start with the setup. Why does the son want to leave? Number one. And number two, why does the father allow him to? He's not foregone conclusions. The father does not have to say yes. The son has no right to demand his inheritance. He does not have to say yes. The father is doing what Paul did. He delivered him over to judgment. The father could say, you're not ready. I'm giving it to you. You have no right to demand it from me. The law's not on your side. Go sue me. Like, you can't have it. And that's not what the father says. The father says, you want it? Fine. Have it. Have the fame. Have the fortune. Be careful what happens if God answers your prayers. Not what happens if he doesn't. The son 
wants money, freedom, position in life. And why does he want it? Because he has been safely protected in his father's house his entire life, and he has no idea what it means to be an orphan. And because he has no idea what it means to be an orphan, he's not scared to be an orphan the way that an orphan would be scared to be an orphan. He's not scared. Because he's always had his father's protective shield all around him. And it's both judgment and mercy. It's always like that. God's judgment is always merciful. It's both judging and merciful for the father to say, great, you can be out there and you can be an orphan now. You can have what you want, but you're no longer in this house. But what if the father had disciplined his son differently when his son was a child? What if he had allowed him to feel loneliness? What if he had allowed him to feel the pulling away of that protective presence? of that joy. Do you know? We don't believe in disciplining children this way because we're like, oh, you know, you, you can't ever let you feel alone. But feeling alone, like, not in a I'm going to die sense, but just in a, you know, I, I need a few hours to, you're going to have a few hours to work yourself, you know, uh, out of your place sort of sense. It, it might be helpful, actually. But do you know we have Christian doctrine that, that doesn't believe in these things? Anyways, all right, so the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. He began to celebrate. Why is it that the father expressed such great joy over his son? Because his son was lost and he was found. And the older brother points out actually rightly that this attitude in his father is irrational, but it's part of humanity. It's part of the way that God has created us to overvalue the things that we've lost. And it's not wrong. His father is love. Obviously, his father's a hero in this story. Like, the father's not wrong, but it is, it is, it is very human. Okay, now, here's a point, though, that I think is really important, uh, uh, just for, for, maybe just for me. When the son comes back home to his father's house, is it the same as if he never left? Is it the same as if he never left? Because very often we think that's what redemption is. We think redemption is when God takes our life that we've messed up and he makes it the same as if we had never messed up. And that's not what happens. Is it the same? It's not the same. The son gets to have his relationship with his father back, but he doesn't have the inheritance anymore. The rest of the inheritance is his brother's. He doesn't have an inheritance anymore. Right? Is that what it said? 
says the father divided the property between them. Everything that remained in the father's house now belongs to his brother. You don't get back what was. You never expect to get back what was. That's not what redemption is. God gives you something different. He saves you from what you've lost, but he doesn't save you by returning you to what used to be. We're very interested in getting back to what used to be. Oh, we can be friends, just like the old days. You're getting the band back together again. How many, how many tired cliches can we apply here? It, it's, but it's not that at all. That's not redemption. Do you remember like in the height of COVID, when people were just like, oh, you know, COVID stops, so we have services again. I, 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 I was saying something then that, except that we've, um, I can't, I, Heidi called me at some point during COVID and um, she's like, yeah, because I had COVID really bad, I was in the hospital and came out. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, although many of you already know that, the story. But um, so after a call that we, she called me and, and she was like, you know, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And I said, I, the, I, forget me for a moment. You know, my, my sickness is not that what's important. So my conviction is that we cannot go back to what used to be. We cannot exit COVID, whatever that means, and do the same services with the same people the same way. So we can't just run, just blindly go and run the same programs and everything else. So I agree. I completely agree. That's exactly what we to move forward. However, what has happened in most churches, almost everywhere in this country, is that we have gone exactly back to where we used to be. We do the same programs in exactly the same ways with the same people, all in the same places. Same people in the same chairs. We've gone back. We've gone back because we like what, is, what was old. We liked the way that it was. We need to stop liking the way that things were. We need to stop thinking, start thinking about what is to be, what is to come. In order to accept what is to come, you have to get rid of what used to be. What used to be on the worship team, great, you're not anymore. What used to be on the catering team, great, you're not anymore. I used to be at this church, you're not anymore. Well, some of you still are. Is it, you know, are you, well, not, not this one, he's talking about the other one. Like, I used to live with my parents, but you don't anymore. And I used to have to listen to them, but you don't anymore. Because life changes. And it may not have changed for them. It may not have changed for them. They may still wish that you lived in their house and they drove you around and did your laundry and told you what to do. Because we don't like dealing with loss. And you can go back to your parents and play dollhouse. Pretend like it's 10 years ago where they told you what to do and what to wear and that your shorts were too short and that you couldn't go out to the movies on Friday with your friends and that you had $20 of allowance a month. But that's not the life you live now. God is giving you a different one. For better or for worse. Because you were a success or because you were a failure. But either way, it's different. And we have to face up to the fact that it's different. We love what is so much that we just don't like moving on, right? What's the hardest part about finding a new job? That you like your colleagues and you like your work and you like your relationships. And or some of you, not all of you. <laughs> don't be, some of you, not all of you. And you like the safety of having an income, but, but then there's nothing new. We're not, it's not, we're not just in pursuit of what's new. We're in pursuit of what it is that God has for us what it is that God has for you. And we're in pursuit of a life where 
I really want you to imagine this because it's terribly difficult. And because if you can actually get to this place, I think that you'd be in a very good place. Imagine you woke up blind one day. You don't need to take, it doesn't take that much imagination. It happens to people, thousands of people. Now, how would you feel? Not awesome, right? Imagine you went to the doctor one day and you found that you have stage four cancer. What will you now do? You empty your life of everything to try to save your life. But why? You're afraid of losing it. There's a lot of things in most people's lives that are on life support. And they're on life support because they have no reason to exist anymore, but you refuse to let them die. Do you know? I have textbooks from the time that I was in college. They should have been recycled a long time ago, or should have been donated to the next generation of econom economic students. They just don't need them anymore. I can't, like one time I, um, I saved one of my old computers, you know? And this is like back in the day where you would repair your own computer. And so I, you know, it would just, it was bad condition. It was like, my computer gotten super hot. There were like burn marks on it. And then I changed out the battery like several times. It never, it didn't work. And years later, I rediscovered my computer. I was like, why do I still have this thing? And I was like, I wonder if it turns on. It didn't. And I was like, I wonder if I could sell this for scrap parts. It's worth like $30. Do you know? It's just time to let go. Would you want to be on life support? Would you be so scared of what's next that you'd do anything to hang on to what you have, even if it's totally useless, and even though you're a vegetable in that place, would you want that to be you? Would you want to be alive on this earth for so long that your, everything you have is just slowly taken from you, all of your life, all your, your facilities, your, and, and, and at the very end, you're, just, you, you, you're nothing. You're just taken care of by others. You can't do anything on your own, and you just, you just exist for the sake of existing because you're too scared to die, too scared to move on. And yet, that's certain things in this life that we have in your life now. There are certain things now. I promise in probably everybody's life, there's just people you should be unfriending on Facebook. Amen. There's just things that you don't need to go to anymore. Phone numbers you don't need to have. Emails that you can, I once went through my emails and I deleted like probably thousands of emails from people that I just don't talk to anymore. I don't need that stuff. It's not part of my life. you know? And there's people that probably would be more free if they weren't tied to you. And there are probably people that you may not need to say this so like straightforward, like boom, but maybe some people you do need to. But there may be some people that you just need to say, like, you will never hear from me again. I will never see you. Not unless you go to heaven anyway, in which case. <laughs> different problems, <laughs> different, different situation. But, but like, there's just, there were a few people very early on in our ministry 
that did some very bad things to us. And for a very, very, very long time, I thought that the answer was redemption in the sense that like, they would like, repent and then we would be friends. And then at one point, I realized that that will never happen. That I still hope they repent and get right with God. In fact, I hope they repent and get right with us if they're still alive. But that will not happen. Because there are certain things, there are certain trusts where you break it enough, you don't get to try again. There are certain relationships where, I'd be very honest with you, this, is, this one should be really easy. If you sleep with someone, you have no business having any more relationship with them. Period of the end. And it does not matter what you think about, oh, you know, God can redeem this. No. He will in an eternal sense, but you have no business like, having a relationship with him in this life. Do you know? And there are just things of that sort that like, that where we just need to understand this is good and this is, this, is, this is important. It is important. It is important that we not get stuck looking back rather than looking forward. And it's important because the more of this stuff that you experience, the more that it becomes real to you, the more raw it is, that like, you're, like things are moving on, the, the more that you can appreciate what it is that Jesus is saying. When you lose a sheep and you have a hundred, it's not that the sheep is so valuable, it's that the pain of that loss is so great that it stirs you irrationally to leave 99, to go fend for themselves, to go look for the one that, that can't be, like it totally makes no sense. And yeah, that's what you do because that, the, 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 the rawness of that, of that loss is just, it's just like that, you know? And there are people in this other like, I'm, I'm so tired of losing things. I just don't want to lose things anymore. But, but it's so useful because that, that is what motivates you to go out there and to seek the lost. We call them the lost because they're lost. They're, but they're lost in a different way because we didn't lose them. But God did. God created them for his own purposes, you know? And, 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 and now, how, but how do I feel about something that I haven't lost the way that somebody who did lose it feels about it, do you know? Like, when Esther loses a hair clip, I didn't lose it. Or, you know, sometimes Esther will lose a mint or something. They'll be like, where am I? Oh, Eliza, you know. She bought a, a, a little thing of mints at the museum gift store. And then, like, three seconds later, she didn't know where it was. And she's like, Father, Papa, we could have stopped to find my mints. I'm like, oh, Eliza, I didn't lose the mints. I don't feel so strongly that we should stop. But, you know, but I, I, I did because I was like, oh, honey, like, that's it's so charming. Where is it? Where is it? Is it in your coat? Is it in your pockets? Like, no, no it's not in my pockets. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me check my pockets. Nope, not here. <laughs> let me check my bag. You know, I, 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 because I didn't lose it. I don't feel as strongly about it. And because you didn't lose them, you don't feel as strongly about it, but God does, and he did. And just like I would stop, you know, for Eliza to go find her mints, like, I, because it's so important to her. I want to feel what God feels. And I want that to compel me to go do what God would do in order to, to find what it is he's lost. It is irrational. But that doesn't change the fact that it is how he has created us to be. And it does not change the fact that unless you have some experience of this in life, you'll never understand what he feels. When we talk about bringing the lost children home, like you don't understand the way that God feels because you haven't had a child who ran away from you. And you haven't had a child who ran away from you, but maybe you had something else, a different relationship, 
Maybe a friend, maybe a brother, maybe a dog that you did lose. And maybe that feeling, if you can, in the right direction, help you understand and motivate you to feel what God does for the people on the streets, for the ones in your classroom, for the ones next to you, the ones that live in sin, the ones that run away from God, they may look like they're doing fine, but in God, they've run away from, they've, they've left. They are lost in the most real sense, more real than anything that you and I could possibly lose. There's, not, there's nothing we lose that's actually lost. Like it's not, you know, it's not actually lost. But, but there's something that, 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 but God did. And, and, and that it's very real to him. Every time you see someone who does not know God, like just like God, he knows them better than they know themselves. He intentionally formed and fashioned them and created them in their mother's womb. And, 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 then, and then had dreams about them. What they would be, how they would grow up, the relationship that he would have with them, the intimacy, the friendship, the secrets that would be shared, the lifetime of discovery, of joy, of faith, of beauty that they would share. And then the vast, 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 vast majority of his children choose not to have that thing that he so intentionally, so purposefully, so deliberately created for them. What does that cause God to feel? And could I take the little pain that I've experienced in my life and try to empathize with what it is that he feels and does that compel me to give the things that I have in this life to help him? find his. If your friend lost their kid in the woods and you would not go out and look for their kid with them, I think maybe there's just something wrong with you. Do you know? Because you're too busy. I gotta finish my movie first. Your kid can wait. There just might be something like wrong with you. If your friend thought that they had cancer and you wouldn't gladly go to the doctor's office with them so they don't have to go through that alone. I mean, maybe you don't really care about your friends, you know? And I wonder sometimes if there's, maybe with us, why is it that God has lost his family, the people that he's created in his own image, so many of them, so many billions of them, and yet we gladly sit on our sofa and watch Netflix finish our life, the things that we have to do before we care about what's on his heart. And the reason, I think, is because we don't relate at all to the feeling of loss. Because we've done everything we can, take every pill we need to take, spend every dollar that we need to spend, do everything we need to do in order to save ourselves from losing things. Even the things that are, should have been lost, the things that have no value, the things that should have been shed anyway. There are unresolved things in every single person's heart. There are people in my past that I wish I would have related to differently. Those relationships are gone. And that hurts, but it's a good thing to feel that. Same for, I think, you.
There was a woman who lived in the early 20th century. Her name was Helen Lamel. She was a, grew up in a godly family, was a wonderful woman of God, and became a professional musician. She was very, very gifted. Trained in Germany and then lived a successful, very successful life, very godly life. And then in, I think, her mid-40s, was teaching at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago when she went blind. There's a musician, and she went blind. And because her husband could not deal with the trauma of having lost his wife's sight, his, her husband soon abandoned her, and she lost most everything in life. She could no longer do her job for obvious reasons. She lost her husband, her family. She didn't have very much left in life. She couldn't play any of the things that she used to play or sing the songs she used to sing because she couldn't read sheet music or anything of that sort. And so she had a choice. She could defy God. She was angry with him. She could run away from God. That's not what she did. She decided that she was going to adjust. So a friend of hers bought her a keyboard and set it in her house, which is a very humble house. And she um, just learned to play all over again without seeing the keys. She eventually began to write songs. She spent so much time doing this that she just began to write songs. and She wrote over 500 hymns, of course, for life, as a blind musician. The most famous of which is a hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The most famous line in Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus is something that I think perhaps is ironic that a blind woman wrote it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The, we are afraid of losing things because we don't look in his eyes on his face because the light of this world is greater than the light of our relationship with him. That's it. That's it. There's probably nothing that you could imagine losing that would be worse than losing your your eyesight. But she did. And then went on to be one of the greatest hymnists of all time. Sometimes I feel like it would be a great blessing for us to lose things. One of the greatest blessings that the Chinese Christians had 
which nobody would consider a blessing, is that many of them were thrown in jail. When they were thrown in jail, they had no other responsibilities. They didn't have, they didn't have a family. They didn't have to buy a house. They didn't have to worry about a mortgage. They could just pray. They could do menial labor, and they could pray and evangelize. And in that place, the God lit a fire of revival under people's hearts. And now there are 130-some-odd million, maybe, believers in China. On, I think it was Friday, you've all heard of the Asbury Revival by this point, how wonderful it is. On Friday, the president of the universe, I think it was on Friday, made an announcement and he said that, um, that things would have to change because they're doing 24-7 worship. And so they stopped the 24-7 worship and now they're doing a few sets a day and then at the end of this week, they're going to stop it entirely. And he doesn't have bad reasons. They're all the same reasons that pretty much every other revival stops. The university is a place where students get educated. The fact that there are thousands of tourists on campus, buses full of people running around, it makes it impossible for students to go to classes and to focus on them. It makes it impossible for clubs to run and sports to run and, and everything else. And that's true. And I believe that he's a man of God, and I believe that, that it was a very difficult decision for them to make. But they are a university, and that is the goal. The goal of the university is to educate people, and these students have come for an education. And the fact that they can't get an education because there are thousands of tourists on campus is not fair. All of this is true, is it not? And yet it does not change the fact that you're stopping something that only God can do and that God did. And it'll end this week. Public services, I think, will end in the next few days and then I'll just, they believe that God will carry the fires to other places, but not their campus other places. And thus you come to the fundamental equation that is all revivals, which is that you cannot have 24-7 meetings if you also intend to get an education or to work a job. The Welsh revival, and I think it was 1906, stopped because everybody in the city was so engaged in the religious gatherings that the garbage is accumulating on the streets. There's no one to, there's no one to pick up the garbage. And so the garbage accumulating on the streets until the streets are full of garbage and the truck cars couldn't drive, and the whole city smelled like just reeked of garbage. And at some point they just said, "Well, the the move of God is wonderful, but, but, but you know, <laughs> but." But but restaurants are not open and grocery stores are empty and we've got the meeting but we don't have anything else. I don't know what the right answer is. I mean, the right that's for a different sermon. But this I do know very much that it will cost something to get the things of God that the things of God can and should be gotten in a way that they are sustainable and can be permanent. And, but more importantly than that, more important than all of that, that our job in life is not to preserve what we have. And that every time you spend time trying to preserve what you have, you are giving up, you're trading what, you, what is supposed to come. And that this is something God created for us to keep us healthy, to help us understand. I expect that in the course of the years to come that people in this church will lose due to sickness, due to abandonment, due to other things, spouses, children, 
friends, jobs, all sorts of things. I thought recently to myself that it's bizarre. In the middle of COVID, when 20 million people in this country lost their job, not a single person in this church was laid off. And at the time, I was, I was not happy about it. I was like, well, we should really sympathize with other people. Maybe somebody can get laid off. But then nobody was. And so I was like, well, it was never the sort of thing. See, I think there are churches where that sort of thing would be a testimony. That God doesn't lay off anybody in this church. Come to our church. And the most recent round of tech layoffs, nobody's gotten laid off yet. So I'm still, I'm not saying praying. I'm just saying waiting. <laughs> Thy will be done, O Lord. In this sort of environment, and maybe it is the protective hand of God that has secured everyone's job, but in this kind of environment where we don't know what loss is, where we don't know what unemployment is, where we don't know what these things are, do you see? It just it can, over time, create something that's very unhealthy. It can create, if nobody's ever lost anything, the first time somebody does, any, does lose anything, everybody will fight against it to try to save that thing that that person has. I don't want that. I think I might be the only person in this church who's ever been fired from a job, much less two. Okay, maybe not the only person. But that needs to be a normal part of our lives. Do you know? These things don't last forever. Thank God. And the more we can understand out with the old wine skin, in with the new. The better we can prepare for what is coming, but also, more importantly than that, we feel the pain of it. Let it like really rock you, and you'll be able to understand what moves God's heart and relate to Him in that. I want to encourage you, if the day ever comes where you go, are starting to go bald, don't try to save yourself. Do you know? And if you have a pimple, there's no reason to pretend like you don't. It's okay. Let it shine. Because <laughs> sometimes, often it is shining, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you don't need to be like, oh, you know, my eyebrows are thin. Let me fill them in. Like, it just, it's okay to lose things. It's good to be like, you know, I used to, whatever, do this and now I don't do it. Or I used to fit that thing and now I don't like it just you, times change yeah. it's different I um gotta go um there's a <laughs> I'll tell you one last thing and then I'll, I'll stop because I, I, I think this is really quite important but um, a few a, a number of months ago I went rock climbing for the first and maybe last, I'm just kidding, not last time ever. And um, I tried so hard um, to be good, I wasn't good at it. But um, one thing I did is, uh, I, I don't know what I did, I maybe tore or sprained a little muscle, and I don't know if you know this, I didn't, there's a little muscle, it's a triangular shaped muscle, it's in your wrist, it's, it's somewhere in this area, and it's what allows this motion, this, like, this sideways motion here. Um, and it allows you to, to, to grab things. Anyways, so when I was rock climbing, I had, um, I don't know what happened to it. Maybe I tore it, maybe I strained it, maybe something. I don't know. But, um, but, but it did happen. And, uh, um, and I came back, and I, at first I thought it was just the sort of thing, I'll just go away in a few days. It didn't go away in a few days. 
Um, and then, so I, I looked it up and, uh, and people talk about it. It's an injury that happens from time to time. Not particularly common, certainly not awesome, but it does happen. And, uh, and so they said, you know, I'll go away in uh, what, four or five, six weeks, something like that. And I was like, oh, four or six weeks, that's a while, but uh, okay. Um, and then so I was like, I waited. And then after four, it still didn't go away. And I was like, oh, God. And then I said to myself, well, what if this is permanent? And then I, and then, and then I was like, no. Nah. I've, I've healed people with like worse things than this. I'm going to pray for this the guy until, I mean, Jesus, hello. Like, I don't lose nothing. I am a Christian. Perfect health. <laughs> A divine health, that's what we teach. It's like, we're Christians. We don't get sick. We don't lose things. We don't like disease, no afflictions. We don't have any of that. It's nonsense. If you, like, if you have glasses, come here. We'll pray for you. Like, take those glasses off. So uh, that's, you know, that, that's the attitude I was raised in. Uh, that's the spiritual culture I was raised in, right? So, so as I used to pray for us, blah, blah, blah. And then I began to experience, actually, just, I don't know if you, you may not appreciate like, how complicated your body is. I, didn't, I don't, and I didn't, and I, and I typically don't. I don't typically walk around going like, wow, that took 53 different muscles had to, like, to work together to do that. Like, I don't typically, you know, it just happens. Like, it just happens. But, but when something little breaks, it causes like, very significant things to happen in your life. Like, I didn't know that like, I wouldn't be able to pick things up. Like, like holding Elisa would just be a searing pain. If I had to like, move her from like, the bed to the crib or something like that, it would just be like, oh. And, I, and so as I was praying for this and as God was not healing me, I began to have to deal with this idea that I may not be able to hold my kids. Because it, it's a serious, like you just can't pick up, I couldn't pick up anything heavier than like two or three pounds without like this, it just, you know, just, you know how it is, like it just, like the nerve pain just like shoot through you. And I'd be like, ah, oh, and I, a few times I was like trying to move, I almost dropped her because it was so painful. And I began to think to myself, what if I have to deal with this for the rest of my life? And what if I can't with my left hand, which is my dominant hand, I'm left-handed, ever be able to pick up anything more than like a few pounds? And then just peace, that it's okay, that it'll be okay, that God will still be there and life will still be fine. Eventually it did start getting better, look, months, like many, many months, um, started getting better. It's still not 100%, but I'm back to being willing to try rock climbing again. <laughs> Community event for April, I'm just kidding, we'll see. Lots of other things we have to do. But I wonder if God didn't allow that to be delayed so that I could go through that journey of figuring out that it would be okay. Do you know? And I wonder if maybe he needs to take us through some of these journeys so we can let go of some of these things so that we can have a finer appreciation, first of all, for what we have, and second of all, for just a more healthy way of living. I, I firmly believe that we have to really, 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 I, I, I mean this, and I know that it's the sort of thing that you're going to be like, oh yeah, that sounds good, and then it's going to be actually really hard to do. There are things in our life that we have to be okay letting go of. And I don't know what it means for you, but I do know that it's there. And it's, it's okay. It's good. And I know that God is in it. And I know that at the end of this, there's something that we can learn from this.
that will help us to know him more. Okay, all right. Let you stand. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. Father, we thank you for who you are. And I just want to pray, Lord, today that you would move on our hearts and that you would change us and transform us and allow us to be like you. And that you would help us, God, not to be people that refuse to let go of the things that we have, but are able to let go of them and to embrace, God, the new things that you have for us. I also just pray, Lord, I really, I just maybe just pray for myself, although maybe other people want it too. God, I want to know, I want to know how you feel. Because I don't want to hype it up, God. I don't want to just not feel the loss, but then pretend that I do. I, I don't want, Lord, to not feel, have a heart for the lost, but then pretend that I do have a heart for the lost and then just hype it. I don't want that. That isn't interesting, Lord. I want to really know what it's like to lose things that are very important to me because I want to know what you feel when you lose things that are very important to you and I know Lord that you are so redemptive that you heal us save us and restore things to us it's awesome you give us our loved ones back from the dead I mean it's just it's awesome you you are so incredible but I just pray Lord that as we go through life and as things naturally need to come off of us that we would be able not to be bitter or to grieve or to have grievances. That we would just trust you at every, every junction, every season, every moment. And I pray for our people. Just as Lot and his family didn't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, we know that it's so easy for us to not want to leave behind the things that, even the ones that we know to be bad, how much more the ones that are fine to us or the ones that we have some doctrinal, somebody told us that we should hold on to that forever sort of stuff. We just need help. We need help. We need help, God, having closure. We need help, God, moving on. We need help, God, pushing people and things out of our life that shouldn't be there anymore. We need help, God, not fearing the pain that we may cause to others when we make these choices. But for the sake, God, of your plan for them, your plan for us, your desires, and the fullness of your heart being fulfilled. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to embrace it. In Jesus' name. Amen.